Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Podcast Nation, welcome back to our Critical Care Series, sponsored by Edward Life Sciences. We are talking to the one and only Dr. Andrew Seely, colleague of mine for years. He's a thoracic surgeon and intensivist, got his PhD, aka Dr. Doctor, and he is now becoming a, a world-renowned researcher and expert in the world of predictive analytics, using machine learning to essentially better prognosticate who could come off a ventilator. Is a patient suitable for donation after cardiac death? Are they likely to deteriorate from their sepsis? Using these tools for clinicians to make better decisions. And honestly, this is a future, I think, moving forward. And so, especially in the world of critical care, where, you know, a lot of these decisions we often make with little guidance, Uh, there's little tools at our bedside to be able to help objectively with uh, some of these hard decisions. So I am super excited to bring this show to you. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Edward Life Sciences, for supporting our, our series. And without further ado, let's go, Dr. Andrew Seely. Quadcast Nation, I am excited to bring to you a friend, a colleague, a mentor of sorts, Dr. Andrew AKA Drizzle Seely, thoracic surgeon, intensivist, scientist, PhD ism. We call him Dr. Doctor. Welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you so much, uh, Quad. That's a fantastic introduction. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you and I have a shared interest in predictive analytics. And um, and I, I'm not sure how we came about this, but I, maybe Andrew, just give a give us a sense of how you came about this and why this is a, such interest for yourself. Sure, I'd be delighted to. But let me first congratulate you, my good friend, on a hundred quadcasts. <laughs> uh, it's an incredible milestone. Uh, I, uh, I I'm amazed in less than a year and a half, and I just want to salute what you have accomplished in that time frame. It's, it's a truly amazing. Um, I love the authenticity of the po- of the podcast, the information provided. I love the, um, the, the informal nature of it and the entertainment value. And, uh, and I also love the fact that you're a balanced voice of reason, uh, uh, you know, in particular with respect to COVID. So congratulations on an amazing 
uh, ride this last year and a half. It's an incredible contribution that you make to our community. So uh, it's, wow. a, it's a pleasure to be on. Man, you're you're coming back on this show, boy. Man, <laughs> that was the nicest. That's the most love I've ever gotten from any guest. A future guest, take notes. That was uh, that was spectacular. Thank you. No, it means a lot. It's. Um, I mean, you and I both know life has changed dramatically since the show has happened, and it's uh, and it's been a blessing. And so that's why it's fun to have you on. People love it when we when we have that camaraderie, the love for each other, and uh, and it's great because we, we. I love it when we get to talk about something that we're uh, I'm passionate about or we're passionate about, and so. Yeah, Andrew, like, what, what, how did you get onto this, uh, like, uh, advanced analytics, predi- uh, predictive analytics? Like, it's um, not intuitive. That would be the uh, love of a thoracic surgeon slash intensivist. Well, it's, um, yeah, I certainly didn't start out with the concept of I'm going to explore predictive analytics. Um, it, um it really began when I was uh, in the lab uh, studying uh, basic science and neutrophil function. And I became aware of the mountains of literature of the way our, our host response works in response to sepsis, infection, uh, shock, trauma. And, and yet we had no viable therapies uh, for patients in the ICU. And I became interested in, in, in a technology, what, what could be used to to track the whole system as a, as a uh, in a holistic manner, um, and uh, and I I became interested in the science of variability analysis, mm-hmm. and variability is 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 really understanding the patterns of variation of of vital signs, rather than their absolute value, and then I, I you know that evolved to I, I you know uh, our research demonstrated that you need to use machine learning or predictive analytics uh, uh, to translate the variability measures into predictive measures that clinicians can use at the bedside. Mm-hmm. So my, um, my foray, if you will, or my you know, interest in predictive analytics you know, came from wanting to uh, make use of, the, of, of monitoring patterns of variation of heart rate and respiratory rate and blood pressure. It is a, by the way, it is a, a almost like a transformational concept. First of all, like the variability, like a, you, you hear about it all the time now, heart rate variability and its impact on recovery or what have you. But this wasn't a common concept to any intensivist. I don't know how many years ago that variability matters, AKA your lack of variability is a sign of poor outcomes. Absolutely. It, and it really, uh, I went to a lecture when I was uh, in my research years at McGill uh, and Peter Macklem was giving this lecture and he was talking about respiratory impedance variability and showing how it was markedly altered in asthma patients. And, um, and it was a, it was a life changing uh, um, lecture. And I, I became uh, struck by how variability was potentially a way to track the whole system properties to uh, that we you know see it altered in the ICU uh, uh, in a patient with severe septic uh, shock and and but you're absolutely right that reduced variability is a sign of of two things actually it's a sign of of increased stress uh, and it's also a sign of increased frailty uh, so so the degree your severity of illness will contribute to a loss of heart rate and respiratory rate variability. And, uh, and also your decreased ability to take on an increased workload 
is associated with a loss of variability, which is uh, uh, one of the ways of thinking about frailty. And and what what and a key point of what you're bringing up too is the fact that you like we it's hard to pick this up at the staring at vital signs, right? Like this is not something that we at the at the bedside can be like, oh, look at that heart rate went from one ten to one twelve. You know, it need, we need um, we need tech, we need uh, AI, we need machine learning to be able to utilize these tools. So, um, I guess you know, what are other um, clinical scenarios where you're thinking that you get to the variability or using advanced uh, analytics can be be helpful? Absolutely. So, so the, the variability or or changes in variability can happen quite frequently in association with a variety of stimuli. Um, you know, heart rate variability may change in the ICU just from a patient undergoing a chest X-ray or, or a, an administration of a sedative uh, will, will, will change their variability. So what we've discovered is you really need to focus the evaluation of variability for a, a, a finite period of time, 30 minutes or 40 minutes or so. Although it can be done for shorter periods of time, 30 minutes really gives you a good sense of what the variability is during that time you try to control other other uh you know other factors uh, during that time and you you then uh, we get a multi-parameter like many different measures of variability and then that is what we convert into a predict we do machine learning on those metrics um so but you asked about what are the kind of situations where this would be particularly useful for well it's where you really want to know severity of illness and or frailty. And so the first example would be a very common decision that we do every single day in the ICU is deciding when to take a patient off a ventilator. So the process of extubation. And it's a critical decision, of course, because if we wait too long, they spend too long on the ventilator and they're harmed by uh, excessive duration of ventilation that makes them weaker, increased risk of infection, but if we do it uh, at the wrong time and they fail extubation and they have to go back on the ventilator in an urgent fashion, uh, you know, within you know a couple of days of being extubated, well, that's a very harmful for the patient. It's like an insult at the worst time, just as they're recovering. Mm-hmm. So we have studied heart rate and respiratory rate variability during a 30-minute spontaneous breathing trial, where the patient is breathing at the lowest levels of support of the breathing machine, the ventilator, and then we evaluate um, uh, the the loss of variability during that time. And we've shown that a loss of respiratory rate variability really is helpful in predicting the you know a, a risk of extubation failure. It doesn't guarantee that like the outcome. It doesn't you know it's not a hundred percent clear if they're going to pass or fail. But it gives you better prediction than any existing measure. And can I add on to that, uh, Andrew? Too just for a second, like the other concept that many people may know already about using AI or machine learning. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as the more inputs get put in, like results, like uh, an, an example of when patients are getting extubated, that algorithm only gets better and gets uh, s- smarter. Is that a fair assessment? A hundred percent. That's a, so. The 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 more data, uh, the better you can uh, uh, train the predictive models. A good you know a good 
way of thinking of the difference between statistics and artificial intelligence, and machine learning is just one subset of artificial intelligence, is statistics is really good to, to show you associations that are are not likely due to chance, uh, so that they're likely real. And it helps you explain things, understand things. Whereas machine learning and artificial intelligence tells you reliable, reproducible prediction. And it turns out, you know, in medicine, as you know, that prediction is more actionable. It's more, you know, it's more useful uh, uh, when you're making decisions about, about patients. And so, so that's what we've done is try to, 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 to bring variability and machine learning to create predictive models that help with clinical decision making. And let me emphasize this to people. I, and I, you know, I don't want to sound too negative, but think about like, I preach that, you know, we're human beings, docs are human beings, but our decision making can be impacted by so much. It could be recency bias. Did our most recent patient fail extubation? And if they failed, if it was catastrophic, you're going to be gun shy to extubate that, that the next patient. Is it what time is it during the day? What resident or whatever is on call? Will they have the skill set to be able to uh, reintubate? Like all these factors come in that are often subjective, you know? So like the more objectivity with something like this, which by the way is ultra impactful because our t- your time on event like th- that's tissue like that's a your more time the more time you need to recovery to recover if you're going to recover so like you know anything that's going to guide us to being more efficient with your time on a ventilator that's uh that's why i call changing the boogie that's called game changing activity you know <laughs> what i'm saying and drizzle i love it i, I love it um <laughs> Uh, uh, changing the boogie is exactly the, the objective here. So, um, but um, the, um, uh, by the way, um, I have to tell you that um, my wife, Kathy, who's of course the same as your wife, Kathy, uh, um, she was like, his nickname for you is Drizzle? What's Drizzle? I'm like, I'm like, that's not very positive. And I'm like, no, Drizzle is really cool. It's really good. It's like, you have like a really tasty sauce or some yummy yeah, gravy. You drizzle it on, man. Yeah. Drizzle it on. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm good with drizzle. I'll, yeah, I'll, I hope so. Next, like, even get Kathy on the mic right now. I'll go explain this to her. This is freshness. <laughs> I would, I, I would be renamed Andrew just so I could be named Drizzle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, so awesome. We, we're using we're using it. Uh, this technology coming in and, and looking at patients that could be extubated. Do you see any other applications that this might be helpful for in the critical care setting or not in critical care? Absolutely. So we actually, there's three tools that we are are actively exploring right now. So Extubation Advisor is a tool that packages a standardized assessment and optimal prediction of extubation outcomes into a a tool, like a, basically a, a piece of paper uh, that you can hold in your hand or a tablet, you know, that, like a report on a tablet that allows you to optimize your decision on when to extubate this patient. It's clinical decision support. It's not clinical decision making so that the, the doc still has to make the decision on when to extubate, but it's improving their decision. And you put your finger on it a few moments ago about enhancing the, the rigor and the, and the objectivity of the decision. So it's all about shifting from, you know, system one thinking to system two thinking, you know, the, the Daniel Kahn, Kahneman, oh, Amos Versky concept of, of, of rigorous, 
you know, a, a objective, deliberate, conscious decision making. And so the tool is aimed to, to, to accomplish that and also standardize the process as well. Because, uh, because we, our own research has shown that there's a lot of lack of standardization in the way spontaneous breathing trials are performed and reported to, to physicians. But you asked about other applications, so absolutely. Um, with Sonny Danani, uh, uh, whom you know uh, from CHEO. Um, uh, now are, a New England Journal uh, first author, by the way. Absolutely, uh, last week, very exciting. Yeah. And so he, um, through that paper, or th- uh, through that study, the DEPART study, we uh, um, uh, together decided to uh, evaluate if heart rate and blood pressure variability could predict um, uh, who... Uh, might be good candidates for donation after circulatory death or DCD donation. So there you're trying to identify patients that are going to pass away rapidly after withdrawal of life support. Of course, these are patients with no hope for recovery. And, and, and so, but the, a family is often keen to pursue organ retrieval and subsequent transplantation. And, 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 but a problem is that we, we have a tough time predicting who's going to die in a rapid fashion, like within two hours to facilitate organ retrieval. But what we found is that a reduced heart rate and blood pressure variability is incredibly helpful to predict likelihood of rapid death and therefore eligibility for DCD. So we are in fact, uh, just started a study uh, at the Ottawa Hospital of implementing our donation advisor tool, although we're doing it initially in an observational fashion, but, um, but that's a, a second example of how uh, a variability can be useful. It, it's also combined with machine learning to, to, to have a predictive model that could be helpful at the bedside. And, and just to reinforce how important that, that is, you know, when it comes to organ da- donation, but from a resource utilization, we mobilize tons of resources to try and, you know, for organ retrieval for, for potential donors. So if that if the patient doesn't pass away within that time frame, you know, that's, which is, you know, obviously really unfortunate for uh, many families there, yeah. but um, well, you're, yeah, you're, like it's, it's resource t- intense to be able to tr- even do the F to make the attempt. To- totally. And I think that often is a reason why many sites don't have a, don't, a DCD program because there are 30% are, are failed attempts. And it's, it's like a double loss for families. Amy Sarti, our colleague, uh, uh, did research to, to show that it really is tough on families, you know, when there's a, uh, um, a failed, uh, uh, you know, a DCD attempt. And others have shown that as well. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's well put. It is like a double loss, I think. And so, like, to be able to have that tool, uh, to be able to get a better assessment, whether it's feasible or not, I think would would um, be extremely impactful. So I, I think that's, that's great, actually. I should ask too, like, are we, are you in a position to say either for um, when it comes to uh, the, uh, the extubation tool and the um, uh, donation tool, like the efficacy, like how well it performs? Is that, is that information available? Um, it's a great question. And, and, the question is, how do you define how well it performs? So mm-hmm. uh, what we do have good information is how well it performs as a predictive model. Mm-hmm. But that's very different from asking the question is, how does it perform as a clinical tool? 
Mm-hmm. And so we're now in the in the very exciting stages of, of applying it at the bedside and evaluating the clinical value. But it's a long process. So uh, the, these um, these tools you have to derive and, and validate the predictive model. You have to uh, build the, the the tool that uh, that can uh, you know use you know build uh, apply it at the bedside. You have to like the clinical decision support tool. Then you have to try it out in observational studies, then interventional studies. But before interventional studies, you need regulatory approval. Mm-hmm. And so you need Health Canada approval or FDA approval or CE mark approval and, you know, in whatever jurisdiction. And so I, and I just wanted to, 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 to highlight that, uh, in fact, because of that, um, you need a company to be able to bring it forward. And um, so many years ago, I founded a company to help uh, commercialize this technology because no one else was going to do it. So, uh, but I believe the whole foundation of its therapeutic monitoring systems is the company. Um, and the, the goal is to, to bring this, you know, t- these, these technologies to the bedside that can, uh, that can improve care and uh, save money as well. So it's all about uh, standardization, improving efficiency, improving uh, 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 quality of outcomes yeah, as well. A lot of, a lot of steps in the, down the road, but you've, you've been plugging away at this for years and I think it's finally coming to fruition of, of the, the large scale impacts that they could be having. I, I want to complete the list though, Andrew, like any other initiatives that you're seeing that you're excited about applying uh, predictive analytics to? Sure. The, the third uh, application that we have uh, uh, explored is, um, is the prediction of future deterioration in patients presenting to the emergency room with infection. Hmm. So every day, uh, countless patients uh, present to the emergency room with infection and the eMERGE doc um, and or the ICU doc and or the, you know, the internal medicine uh, doc need to decide, do we send this patient home? Do we admit them to the ward? Or do we admit them to the ICU? And uh, and if we get it wrong and we admit it them to the uh, to the uh, to the ward, and then they deteriorate, requiring admission to the ICU. Uh, research that you know very well uh, demonstrated that um, uh, that um, that those patients are associated with increased costs and worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. So ideally, you want to identify who should go to the ICU in in you know in advance. And so um, in, co- in, in collaboration with Doug Barnaby, a, a co-principal a investigator out of uh, New York, um, uh, we uh, uh, did a study of 1,200 patients presenting to the, the emergency room with infection. And, and, and we found that heart rate variability and two serum uh, blood markers, lactate, uh, and three, in fact, serum, lactate, INR, and uh, creatinine, were very useful for predicting subsequent deterioration. And it's not, you're not detecting someone who's deteriorating right now. You know, anyway, you know, anyone can detect that at the bedside. It's predicting future deterioration. So six hours later, eight hours later, 14 hours later, when it's in the middle of the night and they're on the ward and they need urgent ICU admission. So we can identify high risk of deterioration, which is puts you in like about a 35 to 40% risk versus low risk, which is like less than 4%. And so we think that that is going to be useful information at the bedside. And we've just initiated a study to, to build the prototype of, we call it sepsis advisor, and it's for the emergency room. So that's the third application that we have. Yeah, no, that's, I, I love it. And I, I could just only see this growing, right? Like, you know, it's, you're, 
I mean, there's so many things. It, it, it almost tests your clinical intuition too, in some ways. Like when you see somebody, they're giving you the heebie-jeebies and, and you, you use sepsis advisor or a tool similar and it's telling you they're, they're high risk of deteriorating. You know, maybe I'm going to put that guy in a more uh, monitored setting. You know, maybe they're in my level two unit. You know, like there's a lot of amazing applications too. Like if they're, you know, on the surface, you're worried about them. They're older. They got that, they had that soft blood pressure, but your index is telling me that there's low risk of deterioration. Yeah. Like that, you know, that patient can now go on that ward bed and hopefully you can sleep easy. You know, like there's a lot of amazing applications to this. And once again, um, using tech and, 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 and AI and machine learning to only that will only get further and further enhanced. So I, a lot of potential here. So a hundred percent, totally. And, you know, you mentioned the concept of uh, level two units and, you know, there are ways to monitor patients on the ward that give predictive monitoring. And, uh, mm. and so a partner that we work with uh, called OBS medical, um, they make a, an index that predicts future deterioration in, you know, using uh, continuous vital sign monitoring on the ward. So it's not in the ICU, not in the, uh, in the ER, and it's not using waveforms, but it's just using vital sign machines, um, albeit continuous. Uh, and um, and they, the, uh, they can predict it with uh, amazing uh, response uh, and accuracy, a future deterioration in someone who's on continuous monitoring. So it might be that we can expand our ability to do that predictive monitoring outside of the ICU. Yeah, I mean, this is... The potential is grand. Like the other one that we're currently working on is using, uh, is trying to be able to predict outcomes of patients that are seen on by rapid response teams, you know, to be able to say, I'm seeing this patient and, you know, trying to decide whether they need to come to the intensive care unit, what are their uh, possibilities of further deterioration and having a tool or to be able to say like, yes, this patient is highly likely to deteriorate or not, I think could go a, a long way, especially in a, an academic setting, you know what I mean? Where there's a lot of trainees that are not experienced, um, that aren't necessarily over the phone giving you the, the best story, um, but just another tool in the toolbox to be able to uh, provide optimal care for our patients. Exactly. It, it makes people better. And you know what's, you know, it's amazing when I um, I was in medical school, you know, 30 years ago, and the monitors in the ICU and in the emergency room then are exactly the same as they are now. And it's just, it's unbelievable to me that despite the digital innovation, uh, like that we, that's revolutionized the world over, like the ICU monitors that has this aura of sophistication. No, it hasn't changed in 30 years. The only thing is that it was like a big, a big cathode ray tube back at 30 years ago. Now it's a flat screen, but other than that, there's no difference. It's unbelievable. So this is really, to me, it's about transforming monitoring. And uh, I mean, your podcast is about transforming healthcare. And this is one component like about transforming the way we do monitoring. You do do make a really good point though. Like it is, I mean, I I harp on the show a ton about how, slow we are to adopt uh, new tech or to change in general within healthcare. But I've never thought of it that way. Like we literally 30 years ago, maybe even longer than that, 
the monitors are the exact same. Like there's tech that could tell you even specific to critical care. Is this patient likely to respond to a fluid bolus? That tech exists. Those monitors exist. You know what I mean? And why not have that directly on the on our uh, our monitors? Why not have that uh, cardiac output, um, you know, cardiac index directly on our monitors? This is two, uh, 2021. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what do we? I know it's 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 related to I think a little bit. Well, a lot is related to to cost, but we need to also think about long term uh, cost benefits. You know, because a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Like if you could prevent, you got somebody with you worried about sepsis and and you know they're they're low likelihood to deteriorate and you decide not to admit them into the intensive care unit, that is significant cost cost savings. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when you look at how some of this tech and these uh, advances like predictive analytics could help us actually save money, I would I can almost guarantee long term, like it's an investment. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, absolutely. And there, but the reason why I think it's taken so long is that uh, it takes years to collect the data necessary to train the predictive model. So, the the the, the study we did it was a multi-center study on extubation outcomes. That was a CIHR funded you know uh, study with over six hundred, I think, seven hundred and twenty patients in, in total. The study on, on sepsis advisor was 12, 1,200 patients. The study on donation advisor that, uh, that Sonny uh, Danani led, uh, the DPART study recently published in the New England Journal, uh, was also many, many hundreds of, of patients. So that's what takes so much time is, is to collect that data. Now, we're getting better at having access to those, that, those kind of data sets that allows you to create those predictive models, but that's the rate-limiting step. So, uh, but it's coming. Transformation is coming. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do think I don't want to get too f- philosophical on, on, on us, but I do think the way we, we got to think about how we're doing research too. Like I would, you know, to me, I would rather see us put a lot of eggs or a lot of eggs in a basket that's going to be high yield and focus. If we're going to do a national studies that focus them on areas or, where we think we could truly make a difference. And instead of it being a seven-year recruitment, it is half a year because we are all in. Um, But that's just my my philosophy. I I do think in our our world of critical care, we need to we need to look at things that are moving the needle, not these like micro uh, interventions that are moving the needle by uh, uh, you know skin hair. But you know, it's we need to we need to really think about how we're uh, what we're doing here. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, uh, data collection, standardized data collection, it would be, would be the key. Like if we could have the same core data set collected in every ICU and academic ICUs across the country, mm-hmm. then it would enable that kind of work uh, that you're talking about. And, and, and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group is, has made inroads in that direction, but um, but there hasn't been, uh, it hasn't uh, achieved fruition yet. And, but I, and same in thoracic surgery. That's what we have been, I've been trying to do in thoracic surgery is create a national core data set that every institution records for all their patients has standard, you know, procedural uh, information, adverse events, length of stay. And then, then you can layer on that trials that allow you to uh, uh, transform care. And, uh, 
but I agree it's it's information management that's the that's the uh the the uh the real uh, area of innovation i think for uh, for the next uh, you know couple of decades yeah and i would i would push us to like you know there's a lot of critical care hopefully people listen to this now and um just really i you know don't aim for perfection aim for good and that way we get hustling because you know we i i just think we haven't moved the needle when it comes to you know critical care research and and things that are significantly impacting lives in a long time. So, uh, but that's my humble personal opinion. And hopefully there's things like this, we're, we're going to see, start seeing some benefit. So, well, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think Canada though, in general has done really well, <laughs> like in, uh, in critical care research, like it's batted uh, well above its, uh, you know, it's, and that uh, we've contributed to the world uh, amazingly. And I would credit the trials group, of course, with that. But, uh, um, but I, I hear what you're saying and, and uh, we can do better. And, and uh, um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I guess that that could come across quite harshly that, you know, cause we do have some amazing reasons. I mean, I think of the Deb cooks of the world, like who is a goddess as far as I'm concerned, um, <laughs> you know, how much they contributed it to, but once again, like let's, Let's not dwell too much in the past. Let's look in the future and how we could continue to move to move that needle. And at least one of my last questions, Andrew, like where do you see the the future? Like if you, you know, we're five years from now and you, and we embrace predictive analytics, um, where do you see it? How big do you see this coming into our world of critical care or in healthcare in general? Whatever is easier to answer. I think it's going to appear everywhere in, in healthcare, but I, I think that um, I think where where there's important decisions that clinicians make, uh, where uh, if the decisions are are wrong in some way, there's there's significant consequences for for the patients, uh, and and there is useful information to be brought that can be helpful to to help with that inform- that decision uh, predictive. Then I think we that's the that's a good. Uh, uh, opportunity for clinical decision support. Um, but the only thing I would say is we have to do the hard work of proving that it's valuable. So yes, we have to make sure that the, 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 the predictive models are, are, are valid, but we also need to do randomized controlled trials to prove the clinical impact. So we're certainly planning clinical trials for all of our tools uh, to evaluate definitively what they do uh, for, for improving patient care. Because the goal here is not just uh, you know new technology. The goal is to transform care, and the only way you can uh, evaluate definitively if that occurs is is through randomized controlled trials. and And clinical decision support tools are certainly you know they they are certainly possible to study in that manner. Um, and so so I just think that we just have to continue the the hard work of developing these tools and then evaluating them rigorously at the bedside. That's a very very well put. Like really getting a sense of the effectiveness. You know, there's one thing how it looks on paper, uh, which a lot of things translate, you know, when you see them on paper, uh, look like they're going to be the, you know, the golden ticket. But once you apply them, you know, especially, you know, are they, is it easy to apply? Is it feasible? Um, Are we, are people interpreting the data appropriately? Like all these are still question marks when it comes to tools like this, but I will say, Andrew, I do. I, I agree with you. I think when we look five years from now, you know, 
five, especially 10 years from now, they'll be, it'll be all over the place. Like, I think it's just um, too, like we need medicine is, is, is searching for these clinical clinical support tools that are objective and that could really help guide decisions. Um, like we're, we're in dire need of that. And as far as I'm concerned, and this, these, these are, are excellent solutions to, to such important uh, problems. Thank you. And, and um, yeah, just to emphasize, like, like artificial intelligence and predictive models are never going to replace physicians. They're just going to make us better. They're just going to mm-hmm. make our ability to make decisions better. Yeah, I, uh, and, and prediction is never a certainty. It's all, there's always a degree of uncertainty. And so it's all about improving our ability to predict as well as improving our ability to, to make uh, the best decision. But uh, so it's going to be an exciting uh, uh, voyage of discovery, like it's uh, and, and, and voyage of application at the bedside. So I'm really uh, I'm, I'm excited. And, I, and the Ottawa Hospital is really supportive of this, too. And uh, so I'm, I, they uh, they've really embraced, uh, uh, you know, moving forward with this. So I, I think that's that's amazing as well. Absolutely. I, I love the vision, too, because uh, any hospital that brings this to, to the table more efficient care, better patient outcomes, in my opinion. So, yes, I love it. I love it. Drizzle and Drizzle. <laughs> Dr. Seeley, thank you for agreeing to do this, joining the Quadcast Nation. We we love you. We appreciate you uh, on a personal level. Thanks for all that you've done. You've supporting, supporting me over the years and uh, the growth of Karamantangisms. But uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Quad. And keep up the excellent uh, work. Uh, it's awesome. Well done. I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Quadcast Nation, tell me that wasn't precious. Tell me that wasn't precious. You got to be in love with Dr. Seeley after this one, people. Listen, follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. You love the show, leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to the podcast. Actually, even more so, tell a friend. We want the show to grow so that we can continue to change that boogie. Anyway, guys, everyone stay safe out there. Thanks for listening, and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.